You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. You might think, oh, the College of the Atlantic, a degree in human ecology, they must be all field ecologists, and that's not the case. And when I visited there the first time, that's, that's what blew my mind, is I, would ha- I had, had lunch with, with an artist and an engineer and a biologist and an anthropologist, and all people trying to talk to each other and actually trying to build a college out of them. It was just fascinating. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 226, Human Ecology airing for the first time on Sunday, January 17, 2016. It is impossible to separate us as humans from the world in which we live. We impact and are impacted by not only the air we breathe and food we eat, but also our fellow humans and other living beings who inhabit the planet with us. Today, we discuss the concept of human ecology with College of the Atlantic President Darren Collins and with educator and author Richard Borden, founding member of the Society for Human Ecology. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Apothecary by Design. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines prepared by experienced professionals with a focus on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way that it's meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, the front room, the grill room, and the corner room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. People who have visited Bar Harbor have likely seen, as they're coming into town, um, the College of the Atlantic, which is set right on the coast and right um, towards the more urban part of that island. Today we have with us Darren Collins, who is the president of the College of the Atlantic. Collins has his doctorate in cultural anthropology, and prior to his role at the Mount Desert Island College, he worked as a managing director at the World Wildlife Fund, where he helped lead a project to save the largest member of the salmon family, the Mongolian taimen, from the brink of extinction. Darren lives in Bar Harbor with his wife and his two daughters. Thanks for coming in today. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. So I have to start with the Mongolian taimen. That seems very specific. <laughs> Do you know what it is? Um, well, I, apparently it's the largest member of the salmon family. That's right. Yeah, so it's an enormous, voracious, predatory fish that can reach in adulthood, you know, five or six feet in length and weigh 100 pounds. And it's a fish that once existed all over Eastern Europe, all the way to Japan, and over the past century has been really forced down into just a few small rivers, one being the Onon River in northeastern Mongolia, which is actually the river where Genghis Khan was born. 
So it's a, a very relevant river for, for Mongolia, and it's an amazing fish. Yeah. So considering that it's enormous and a predatory fish, yeah. it's surprising to me that somehow it almost reached extinction. Yeah. Well, you know, it's become something like a um, the, the big five mammals in Africa. So people hunt the fish for its head for, as a trophy. But it also... It, it, Formerly, it, it doesn't do well at all where there's development or where there's damming or mining. And so that's what shrunk the population down to where it is today. But even in northeastern Mongolia, where um, the landscape is pretty quite close to pristine, it's hunted there as well. So, um, but we've made great progress to bringing that fish back from the brink of extinction. You have an interesting background because although you've worked on this Mongolian taman, you actually have your doctorate in cultural anthropology. That's right. Yeah. And you're now at a school where you, apparently you've got your undergraduate degree that offers um, a degree in human ecology. That's right. Yeah. So these all seem kind of linked, but but they're not all exactly the same thing. The, yeah, you're so, absolutely right. So, so how did you get from point A to point B to point C <laughs> right. to where you are now? You know, so I I grew up in New Jersey, and I'm the first kid in the family to go to college. And I found the College of the Atlantic. It was the absolute perfect program for me. I just loved my four years there. Absolutely loved it. And after that, you know, I went on and I, I got this degree in, in anthropology, a PhD in anthropology. And that's not a huge leap from what I worked on in, at the College of the Atlantic. I was interested in this balance between how can we find sustainable solutions for communities where at the same time preserving some sense of ecological integrity. And so anthropology is, is also a good lens to do that. Um, at Tulane, that's where I did my, my PhD, my wife and I moved down to Guatemala and we were living in a very, very, very remote village in northern Guatemala, trying to understand how a local community manages its own resources. So then it wasn't a huge leap to um, move from that situation to working with the World Wildlife Fund, which is an excellent organization based all over the world, but I was working out of Washington, D.C., where the goal is, again, to try and find these balances between habitat conservation, species conservation, and community-based development. Um, maybe the jump back to the College of the Atlantic was a little bit uh, more significant or, or, or different. I did not come up through the typical ranks that most college presidents come through. You know, I, uh, most most of the time people go to they're a faculty member, then they lead a department, and then they're a dean, and then they're provost, and then they're president. But I didn't come through that, you know, that mix. Um, and frankly, I, I'm, I'm glad, and I would, would have no interest in being president really anywhere else except the College of the Atlantic. I was drawn to the college, not to the rank, so to speak. And uh, it worked out, and I'm in my fifth year now and loving it. So it's really good to be back at COA. Was there anything in your background growing up in New Jersey that caused you to be interested in things like human ecology? I, I, my mom. I, you know, I, New Jersey is not the kind of place you think about when you think about kids and nature. Um, but my 
my mom managed to find every square inch of woods in the county that I grew up in. And that experience was, I think, what really cultivated the interest in, in being outside. I, I, I loved to be outside, and that's probably one reason why I'm very happy being back in Maine, because there's no better place to, to do that than in Maine. And, but, you know, if I, if I look, look back at my childhood, I think she had a lot to do with it. I also had some, I went to a, a public high school, and there was one teacher in high school that was just fantastic and really saw something in me, uh, saw that kind of aha moment in my eyes and helped me cultivate that interest. And Jim Duffy, who I still call Mr. Duffy, because you always call your high school teachers by Mr. and Mrs. And Mr. Duffy really helped cultivate that interest as well. Well, I agree with you. I'm thinking about all my high school teachers, many of whom have now taught my own children. And I still will go to my children's conferences and I'll say, oh, there's Mr. Hall. Right. You know, and yeah. Increasingly more and more of them have retired because that's how old I am. <laughs> right. But, right. Um, but, but yeah, and there is something interesting about education and how much it really can impact someone for decades, yeah, which must be part of your fascination with working with the College of the Atlantic. It, it is. Um, and institutions are important and people are important. You know, when, again, when I look back at my high school, it was that one individual that really sparked my interest. Um, and so at COA, we've always in our kind of 43 year history have focused on getting the right people there. And the faculty, staff, trustees and students we have there are really spectacular people, and that's what makes the institution what it is. How many students are at the College of the Atlantic? We're at 350, and that is the the maximum. Uh, One of the things I did when I came in as president is to say to be small is to be special, and um, so we are strategically capped at 350 students which allows us to do things that would be very, very difficult at other, at other colleges. Um, and it allows us the very close relationship between students and faculty, and it allows students to really be participatory in the future of the college. We want students to play a role in how the college evolves. So that's, that's an important part of the education. And that would be really hard to do at larger scales, but at 350, it really works. That's a pretty small student population. That's smaller than many of the high schools, many of the larger high schools yeah. in Maine. Oh, yeah. How, I mean, that's about how many kids I graduated with in my senior class in high school. So it is small, and it's strategically small. It's that for a reason. How many faculty do you have? We have about 35 full-time faculty, and then uh, a cohort of 5 to 10 adjuncts, assistants and lecturers. So we have a very small student-to-faculty ratio, which is a guiding principle at the college. It doesn't seem to me that you could be much older than the college itself. (laughs) So I'm 45, and the college uh, was founded a year before I was born, right, in 1969. And um, it was an amazing time, and the the mythology of the, the college is really interesting. And a, a Catholic priest, Father Jim Gower, came together with a, a local businessman, Les Brewer. 
and they had this idea of creating a college on Mount Desert Island. And Les, the business owner who lives here in Portland now, um, said, my gosh, we have to do something to help revitalize the community. A college would be great to do that. And Jim Gower, who passed away a few years ago, um, had buried way too many boys coming back from Vietnam, and he was struck by the social and ecological upheaval of the, of the time. So those two came together and formed the college and brought in an amazing man, Ed Kelber, as our founding president. And in 1972, our first cohort of students came, and they were 36, and a group of four remarkable full-time faculty and a smaller number of part-time faculty and created this this school and I, I have a picture of that initial cohort on my on my desk because it really captures what it must have been like back in 1972 to be starting something entirely new it must have been amazing well that's what I'm wondering is that we've interviewed um, we interviewed the the president at Bates and mm-hmm. their college was founded with ideas of um, sort of e- equality and at a time when women weren't really being yeah. educated yeah. and people who are of African-American descent weren't really being educated. So they had a very specific cultural context. Yep, that they of arose. their founding, yeah. And it sounds like yours is similar, but yours is so young. It's young, it, and it's amazing to be able to reach back to our founders, to be able to call. I just had lunch with Ed Kalber the other day, the founding president, and and ask him, you know, what would you do in this kind of situation? Or talk to Les Brewer here in Portland, who's still on the board of trustees of the college. And having that proximity to the origin is is really exciting. I mean, most most colleges, um, most of the kind of liberal arts colleges that you can name are 150 or 160 years old. And so it's really remarkable to be a college that's only 40 or so years. Um, and that's, that's a, that offers a, a unique possibility for students as well um, to be so close to the origin. We had Jay Friedlander um, in talking to us, and Jay originally had worked with Stonyfield and had more of a business background yeah. and came in and does a lot with marketing That's right. at yeah. the College of the Atlantic uh-huh. and sustainable business. And he's also... He's also young. Yeah, J- Jay's, I'll kid him, he's a little older than I am. He's probably 47 or something like that. <laughs> but yeah, we're about the same age. So that's so fascinating to be, as a, I would think, you know, I have college-age children, and to be to be working with people that aren't too much older than you are, the sort of the vitality, the energy, the excitement. Do, do you I, have that sense around campus? I definitely have that sense, but it's not necessarily pinned to age. Uh, we have a founding faculty member, Bill Carpenter, there, who um, you know was one of the four founding faculty members, and he is every bit as vivacious as Jody Baker, who is a n- relatively new faculty member at the college. And so I think what's amazing is having that cross-section of people. Um, and you know that is a real special thing. And like I said, the faculty are 
what drive this this college um, and the students because adventurous faculty attract adventurous students and I think that's a pretty descriptive and useful descriptor of the College of the Atlantic would be adventurous. Well, and I guess I wasn't um, suggesting, just to be fair to people who are not <laughs> around your age, <laughs> I wasn't suggesting that once you get older, you you automatically become less energetic. No, I no, think there yeah. is a sort of a, um, there's a spiritedness, a sort of a sense of youth yeah, that, that, that I get. And yet the interesting thing about the College of the Atlantic for me is it seems very like, like, uh, I guess adventurous. I guess adventuresome. Like, yeah. da da da, here we are. It's the <laughs> College of the Atlantic, you know? Uh, I think like, that's right. superhero ish, yeah. almost. Well, I, um, adventurous, yes. Superhero, I like, like, cultivating a sense of humility is also <laughs> important, right? So, yes, all students, faculty, and staff are at COA because they want to make the world a better place. Um, that can happen at, all different levels from, you know, trying to help solve the, the climate change problem, which is universal and global, down to making one's family a better place. And so um, I think adventurous is, is a great, great word um, for describing it. And it is not just um, adventurous in the sense of uh, the physical nature of adventure, but like academically and intellectually adventurous also. Well, and I guess when I said superhero, I just meant like sort of willing to take on things <laughs> yeah, that yeah, were yeah. large, yeah, you know, bigger right. than oneself. That, that's exactly right. You yeah. actually did. I follow the College of the Atlantic on Instagram, yeah. and you hiked, what was it, 24 trails in so many days because yeah. you were trying to get uh, 40% of your alumni to participate in the giving process? That's right. This this past fiscal year, which ends, you know, July 1. So out in June, I did a hike in Acadia National Park that covered 40 of the named peaks in one. I was trying to do it in 24 hours, but I didn't finish it in time. So it was 26 or 7 hours. And um, it, did, it did inspire interest. And we had 43% of our alumni make a gift to the college, which is a lot, is a, is a really very significant number. And that was um, really hard, <laughs> even though the mileage, you know, any athletic person that can stay up for 27 hours could probably have done the walk. So it wasn't like some uh, El Capitan climb or anything like that. All these peaks, you can walk to the top. But I think it was the persistence is what, what made it interesting. It was really hard, and I'm still, I think I'm recovering. I, sh I, I found, I showed my age a little bit that I felt a little, um, I was beat up a little bit after that trip. But it was great. It was amazing. What are some of your favorite things that um, are happening right now on the campus and that are happening, um, that our alums are making happen around the world? Yeah. Gosh, there's so so much going on um, on campus. You know, one of the, one of the things that our students do, which somehow is emblematic of the college, is they frequently create pop-up restaurants. Um, so students are living off campus, and they will glean all the food possible from our two farms 
from what the kitchen doesn't use, from what the local grocery stores don't don't use, and they will create a pop-up restaurant in town for one night. And it, they'll, it'll be for a fundraiser to support Share the Harvest or something, which is a, a, a student-led project to bring good food to people who can't afford it. Um, the work on our farms, I think, is really exciting. We, we have these two farms, um, Peggy Rockefeller Farm and the Beach Hill Farm, and they, they are there for student learning, for people that are interested in agriculture, but they're also there to provide food for our own campus, which is really important. We also, we have two islands that are off, further off the coast of Maine. Um, one is called Great Duck Island, and another is Mount Desert Rock, which is the furthest point of land out in the Gulf of Maine. And the work that happens on those islands is really very, very special. Um, and it's a lot to do with marine mammal conservation and seabird conservation, but it's also about art and production of art and learning about how the ocean landscape affects uh, human beings and humanity. And um, our islands in Maine are one of our unique values, I think, as a, as a state. Um, another thing is the relationship we've developed with the Island Institute based in Rockland. And we've been doing work collaboratively with the 15 unbridged islands um, on the coast of Maine, uh, working with food security and sustainability, energy, um, working with education and adaptation to climate change. And so getting our students, faculty, uh, together with the Island Institute staff and with community members on these islands to help you know, make life uh, more of a possibility for, for folks out on, on those outer islands. I think that's, that's pretty exciting. So there's loads go going on on the, on the campus. You also have some distinguished alums, including um, our congresswoman. Yeah, Shelley Pingree. Yeah, Ed Shelley is a, just a fantastic woman, and her leadership in the state is uh, something that we we talk about a lot. Um, but she's you know she's one of of we only have I think we're up to twenty one hundred alumni, so we don't have you know hundreds of thousands of alums but when you look at a cross-section of of them I, they're they're pretty impressive again and they've done things um, across just a, a, a crazy spectrum um, you know one of our first graduates in the first graduating class was Bill Ginn and Bill Ginn uh, lives here in Portland but he's also um, a very senior person at the Nature Conservancy in Washington. He runs the science and field programs at the Nature Conservancy. And so he was in that, you know, first first class. And so we often talk about Bill Ginn as one of the two people that graduated in the class of 1974. Um, but then, you know, Shelley is an, an obvious, obvious one. Um, but we have folks from like Anjali Apuradai, who has just graduated a, three, a few years ago, who is the youth delegation leader at some of the, the conference of parties for the UNFCCC, the, the climate change party. So this woman, Anjali, kind of led the youth delegation throughout 
uh, Durban, South Africa during during that time, and it will be in France this um, a week a week from now on the 30th, the COP 21. So it really the they cross. You you might think, oh, the College of the Atlantic, a degree in human ecology, they must be all field ecologists, and that's not the case. I mean. They, um, they're writers, they're teachers, they're businessmen, they're our field ecologists, they're artists, um, but they all have this passion for serving and wanting to make their communities better. Um, and so they have this also this real entrepreneurial spirit. So I think those two things, the entrepreneurial spirit and the sense of serving is the thread that runs through those 2,100 or so people like Shelley. The College of the Atlantic was featured in the New York Times for work that they, um, work that you have been doing in sustainable energy. That's right, yeah. And that's kind of, that's a big honor. It's a, it's a huge honor, yeah. I mean, I, I've pointed to that article a number of times and I'm not afraid to do so again because it was, a, it was July 1, uh, the fr- front page of the business section. Um, and the author, Diane Cardwell, did a, just a great job at capturing a program that we have that was inspired by this partnership with the Island Institute to do work out on an island called Samso, which is in Denmark. And Samso made this transition from being completely dependent on the mainland for fossil fuels to being not only independent, but actually a um, manages to ship sustainably produced electrons actually back to the mainland and so it's become self-sufficient in a really interesting and useful way and so our students and island institute staff and community members from five different islands off the coast of maine visited samso uh, learned what we could learn from their example and brought that back to places like peaks island and long island and vinyl haven and um Matinicus and uh, Monhegan. Um, and so working, actually we didn't, the Matinicus wasn't one, but Monhegan was. And uh, working with those communities to say, okay, so we saw what was possible here in um, on Samso. You have all this youthful student energy and you have the expertise of people like Anna Demio and Jay Friedlander um, and of the Island Institute staff. And you have are other other faculty at the College of the Atlantic wanting to, to play a role. And I think the take-home message there was it's not a technological solution. It is not rocket science to get electrons from wind or from the sun and get them so they're flowing out of a an outlet. The real hard part is the community involvement and how to make that happen. So, you know, our expertise with people like Gray Cox, who works on community development, um, with people certainly like Anna, that is a physicist, but people like Davis Taylor, who is an economist, all that mix, and that's really a great example of what human ecology is, um, trying to bring sometimes disparate fields together to solve um, interesting challenges. And um, it's worked really well, and the, the future will be exciting for that. 
We've been speaking with Darren Collins, who is the president of the College of the Atlantic and also an alum. Thank you so much for all the work that you've done, not only with the College of the Atlantic and with your daughters, but also with saving the largest member of the salmon family, the Mongolian taman. <laughs> I, I remain very impressed by this. Good, you, yes. It, we're not out of the woods with the fish yet, but we're heading in the right direction. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Lisa. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough, and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaME.com for more information. I really enjoy reading books from people who are thinking about things in a broader perspective. Because often, as someone who thinks about things in a broader perspective myself, I feel a little alone in the world. But today I know I am not alone in the world because I have with me a guest who, who really has made a lot of interesting connections between the things that he has studied and experienced. This is Richard Borden, who holds the Rachel Carson Chair in Human Ecology at the College of the Atlantic, where he teaches courses in environmental psychology, personality and social development, contemporary psychology, and the history and philosophy of human ecology. He served as the College of the Atlantic's academic dean for 20 years, is a founding member of the Society for Human Ecology, and is the author of Ecology and Experience, Reflections from a Human Ecological Perspective. Thanks so much for coming down and having a conversation with me today. Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here. So this is a really um, a 400-page work of a lifetime, really. I mean, this must have taken your book, Ecology and Experience, Reflections from a Human Ecological Perspective. This must have taken a lot of energy and time to create for you. Well, yes, and it, <clears throat> it sort of spreads out over many years and, and, and actually touches all of my life at some point or other, it's at stages of my life. And it, it was also an opportunity, uh, I was dean at, at College of the Atlantic for a long time, and when I stopped being dean and stepped down from that and went back to teaching, I didn't know what I wanted to do next, but I thought I wanted to learn how to write essays. I'd always enjoyed people like uh, Lauren Isley and, and people who could take complex ideas but put them into essays instead of into textbooks. I didn't want to write a textbook, but I wanted to write about what I thought I knew something about and definitely what I cared about. And I just started off on that, and I really started with a class. The, the title of the class was Ecology and Experience, the same as the book. And, and where I started was I invited students to just read sort of random uh, ideas with me <clears throat> in a seminar style, but they were the things that were my gaps. They were the areas that I, I knew I wanted to know about but never had taken the time to do it. Some of it was philosophy, some of it was evolutionary biology, it was some of it was literature, and we just read that together. And that started to form in my mind and without being sort of on duty every single day as dean, I had a chance to stay home one, sometimes two days a week. And I developed a writing style 
that if I, I was able to be alone for the whole day, if I got up in the morning, unplugged the phone, made a pot of coffee, and sat down, I could maintain myself until the, the end of the night. And I had never had that kind of opportunity before. So having 14, 15, 16-hour blocks, I got quite lost in my own thinking. And, and at, at that time, I only had dial-up internet, which was slow, which was really good because I didn't get overwhelmed. I could search for things and they would come to me slowly. And I just spent a lot of time weaving these little things together and it turned into a book. And, and that is the interesting thing about what you have done, and that is bringing together ecology and history and biology and psychology. I can understand why you would have felt at times a little lost because there's just so much. And I, and I was really, I was impressed by that, the fact that you could actually focus it down and put it into this, into this book. Yeah, uh, I, the, the book starts with five chapters. And I sort of use an ecological metaphor there called the transect and plot, which is a sort of a way of understanding a landscape, if you will. You sort of go across it, but stop along the way and, and do inspections. And the five areas that I felt uh, I had some familiarity with uh, were my own life. And so I sort of start there, and I actually begin it with sort of an autobiographical transect through my life. Um, and then after that, the, the academic areas where I had been involved one way or another. Uh, I, I certainly uh, psychology, um, or the mind, or the inner world, or consciousness. Uh, ecology, which is about how nature works and so on. Then with the intersection of those two, human ecology, which is, I guess, what my life work has really been about. It's certainly what the College of the Atlantic is has been trying to do, and it's why I came to College of the Atlantic, was to try to put something around the idea of human ecology. And then finally, education, higher education, which I sort of fell into being a dean. I never planned on being a dean, but I ended up being a dean for a pretty long time and having to learn a lot about the history of higher education. So it was a chance for me to put those together. And that was really, I, I guess I'd say, a foundation. And at that point, I was sort of done with being sort of academically legitimate. And from then on, I, I could dance. And the next 10 or so chapters are me just doing, I guess, sort of little jazz interpretations, pulling pieces from the foundation. Well, let me read a little bit from chapter three called Experience. And you start out with a quote from Soren Kierkegaard, life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. You say, to talk of experience is to enter a house of mirrors. Knowledge of reality requires awareness, yet we cannot know consciousness independently of reality. Experience is constructed and held together by subjective consciousness, but in an instant, it can become the target of its own reckoning as objective self-awareness. The objects of thought cannot be untangled from the processes of thinking itself. So that's such an interesting idea that we're meant to, to live this life and simultaneously study this life, but once we're studying it, it's the, it's the observer becoming the observed. Yes. And it, it, and it is this interesting house of mirrors and one as a writer and a doctor that I, I see all the time, that what, what is the actual nature of reality? Which is a huge question. Yes, yes, and, and that's, I think that's from the chapter on experience or, or psychology. And basically for me, that's the beauty of psychology. 
There, I, I believe in a few things. Uh, one is I believe the world is really there. Um, so I don't have that problem. But in addition to that, I also believe that consciousness is real. And that's what that part of the book is about. It's trying to, to get, to put something around the idea of consciousness. And, and, and one of the beautiful things about consciousness, human consciousness, is that it has the capacity to split itself. We can both think our thinking or do what we're doing, but we can also observe ourselves thinking what we're thinking and doing what we're doing. And that splitting, that capacity for introspection, that capacity for insight, is what makes psychology psychology. And it's also what makes psychology so different, let's say, from ecology. The living world is out there, but an awful lot of it, I would say, is not in, in, has, does not have the capacities for self-awareness in the same way that we do. It knows how to do what it does, but not in a self-conscious kind of way. We have this other opportunity, this other set of problems of figuring out, now what do I do in becoming who, am, who I am? A plant doesn't have to think about that too much. It just adapts or finds its way in its environment. We are in this sort of dilemma of free will. And that's both a stubborn philosophical problem, but it's a beautiful thing also. Tell me about human ecology. And one of the things I liked about reading your book is that it reminded me that some of these fields are really relatively young. Some of the fields that you've been involved in, psychology is relatively young. Even biology, per se, is relatively young. We're talking not hundreds of thousands of years worth of study officially. We're talking maybe a few hundred years. Right. So tell me what human ecology is, because that's kind of the baby of all of these. Uh, this is where it starts to get hard. So let me, let me start with something very simple and give you a definition, sort of the standard keyhole definition of human ecology. And let's say it is the study of human environment interactions. That's a starting point, small. We broaden it a little bit and say it's the study of the interrelations between humans and their natural, their social, and their technological environments. It gets a little bit bigger. Once you get through that, it, it, becomes, it really becomes, in some ways, about everything. We are part of the living world. Even though we can stand away from it, we are part of it also. And it's really trying to figure out how to bring those things together. And let me, let me add here that uh, given that those are two, two starting points, I would say there are two kinds of unconsciousness. There's the unconsciousness that we have of our inner selves, that through insight all of a sudden you, you recognize something about yourself, a buried intuition or whatever that you didn't know before, but it changes who you are, or at least it potentially can do that. To turn that the other way around, or inside out, or, uh, or onto the world, I think there's also a lot of unconsciousness about the world. And in many ways, that's what science does. Science sort of brings things that are out there into our awareness. They bring them into consciousness. And then we have to, we can use that knowledge or do what we want with that knowledge. Ecology as a science is very, you, you, as you say, very recent as a, as a field. Uh, this year, 2015, is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Ecological Society of America. And I was quite involved with that back in August in Baltimore. And uh, ecology, I think, is, I would say, is the quintessential interdisciplinary science. In, in, to, to understand what ecology is trying to get at, you have to know physical science, you have to know geology, you have to know hydrology, you have to know about soils, you have to know about botany, you have to know about 
continental drift. You have to know about animal behavior and all the, and you have to know about all those things together. And it's only in those things together that you see the patterns that connect those things. And those patterns which connect the living world within itself is what ecology is about. Right? It's not just about the naming of the organisms. It's about how they interact with each other and how those interactions change here and now into what's going to happen next, in, in, in basically how they participate in evolution. So what I, what I was trying to do here is to bring that into awareness, and that's what human ecology is about in many other places. Although different people put start from different places. I started really as a psychologist who got interested in ecology and then sort of went down the hill from there. Other people uh, start from architecture or planning. Uh, and, and they want to understand how to plan in an ecological and a human ecological kind of way. In medicine, particularly public health, there's a lot of people who use human ecology as a frame to understand not just what the concept of health is, but how it relates to the environment and how it relates to evolution and how it relates to human choices. It becomes inherently interdisciplinary. And you will find those kinds of people in the tent that has the name human ecology on the outside of it. When I think about ecology, um, I think about sort of this 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 movement that has occurred, and and the idea of Earth Day and how we all want to quote unquote save our planet. You pointed out that Earth Day itself is really only, I believe, just over forty years old, and also the actual ecological movement and Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and. I think it was the burning of the Cuyahoga River and all of this stuff. It, it all was happening really not that long ago. It's, it's all in my lifetime. Uh, I remember reading Rachel Carson. My mother uh, was a member of the Book of the Month Club, and we got her early books before Silent Spring, and I remember reading Silent Spring. I definitely remember the Cuyahoga River uh, bursting into flames because I was in Ohio uh, at that time, and I was there for the first Earth Day. So really what I'm trying to do is I'm using my lifetime in some ways as a measure of just how much change and what kinds of changes have happened in the last, whatever, 50 or 60 years. It must be interesting for you to be in, in Maine doing this now because you're not originally, you're not originally from Maine, but you, and you, you came to Maine very specifically to work with a, an academic organization that was also relatively young but had similar principles mm-hmm. to yours. Mm-hmm. Well, um, there's a lot of starting points for this story. But uh, I, I was a psychologist. I was trained as a psychologist. I worked for a while in, uh, in community mental health centers, and the work was not rewarding for me or for the people who were there because the system really was not a good system for providing services. And I found that difficult. And I, I, I sort of thought maybe I don't really want to do this. And I went and did a postdoc in animal behavior and behavioral ecology because I thought, well, maybe I want to go out and study wolves in the wild or something like that. And in the process of that, uh, I got more interested in the idea of ecology than any particular species of animal. And, I, and it started to, to occur to me that ecology, as a science, has something to tell us as human beings about the world. It's, it, that is, it can put up a certain kind of mirror. And if you see yourself in that mirror, it has the potential to change how you think about yourself, how you think about everything. So I started to be interested in the way in which ecology came into the human psyche and what happened when that happened. 
So I started going out in the world looking for people who knew something about ecology or thought about it or whatever. And and uh, then uh, this was at, this was at Ohio State, but then I went to Purdue, and at Purdue I had the, they gave me the opportunity to start to create a small program in environmental psychology, which is where these things could come together. And at that time, most people who said anything like environmental psychology were talking about how the built environment affects us, or noise pollution, or all those kinds of things, sort of the outside in. And I was more interested in the sort of classical analytical notion of consciousness, unconsciousness, and the transformation of consciousness and personality change through insight. So I was looking for ways in which ecology could provide psychological insights that would be life-changing for people. And I was in a sort of a bad mood one day, and I wrote a little snarky article where I said that I didn't think there was anywhere in American higher education where a person could get a, a bona fide interdisciplinary education. And and one of the responses that came back came from a, a, a psychologist at the University of Michigan. And he said, well, Rich, um, there's this little college that was just founded up in Bar Harbor, Maine, by a bunch of Harvard types, and they're doing something called human ecology. That's the first time I heard the term. But the minute, I, the instant I saw the term, I thought, yes, that's it. And it was, it was itself an insight for me that those are the words that are getting at what I'm trying to get at myself. So I wrote a letter to the College of the Atlantic, sort of formal, and said, you know, I'm a research professor at a university and blah, blah, blah. And I would like to come and study you uh, with my graduate students. And I did. They, they invited me. In fact, the then uh, faculty member, Steve Katona, who later became president of COA, wrote back to me on the back of my letter, handwritten. He said, yeah, come on up, help yourself. Uh, you can stay with me. And I did. And I studied the students pretty seriously as in its personality psychology, attitudinal psychology kind of study, and started writing that up and doing things like that. And then I had an opportunity to, to take a sabbatical from Purdue, and I, I spent that semester at COA. And I guess I fell in love and sort of reciprocated, and they invited me to be the first psychologist on the faculty. And that's how I got started in this. Maine has a long history of being at the forefront of ecological efforts. I, I believe it was our senator at the time, Ed Muskie, and don't quote me on this, anybody who's listening, if I'm wrong, please let me know, but involved in the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, and then eventually we had George Mitchell and um, Cohen. We've had a lot of people who have been involved in, in these efforts. So it, it somehow doesn't surprise me that if you're going to have a small college that's being founded uh, roughly in the same time frame, um, on the dealing with human ecology, that it would be in Maine. There's something about, I don't know, the way that we pay attention to what's going on around us that seems to make this a prime spot for these sorts of efforts. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true for Maine as a whole. It's especially true for Mount Desert Island. Mount Desert Island, the, the history of Mount Desert Island, of course, was it was a sort of an out-of-the-way place that no one paid much attention to, I'm sure, in the mid-1800s until some of the Hudson River School painters came. And they started, uh, Thomas Cole and people like that started painting the island, and, and they took the paintings back to the big cities, New York and Boston and Philadelphia. People said, where's that? And some of those people started to come and, and rusticate, as they called it back then, stay with the local farmers. and. Before long, they wanted to have their own places here, and they started to build what they called cottages, which, as you know, were very large homes, but nicely built. But they did it in a way that did not 
um, that harmonized with the landscape. They didn't build them on the tops of the mountains like they did in most other places. They built them in sort of hidden, hidden in the woods and so on. And 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 then uh, and then there was a hotel era there. The same kind of thing happened. And then uh, other people of money, the Rockefellers and George Dorr, went about protecting the many of the the features of the island and purchasing the land and turning it into the the first uh, donated land national park. So you have that kind of attitude right there in the landscape. It's been there for for a very long time. And then there was the fire of 1947. And that completely changed the landscape in a dramatic way and burned up half of the town of Bar Harbor and a third of the island and a big portion of the park. Uh, And in the recovery of that, uh, some local uh, men who had gone to to Bar Harbor High School, one a Catholic priest, Jim Gower, and the other a businessman, Leslie Brewer, started to play with the idea of let's build a college here. And as they started to develop the idea, uh, Jim Gower actually uh, overheard, heard on the radio, a lecture by Ian McCarg. And Ian McCarg was a founder of a human ecology planning program at the University of Pennsylvania in the 1960s. He wrote a very influential book called Design with Nature, which was a sort of a breakthrough in regional planning and, and landscape architecture. And anyhow, uh, uh, Father Gower heard him on the radio in his car, and as they were having their meeting about what kind of college should this be, he said, how about a college of human ecology? And that's sort of the birth or the creation myth of how it happened. And then they looked for their first employee, who was the president, the founding president, Ed Kalber, who came out of the Harvard Ed School. He'd been an associate dean down there. And he put words around it, and he wrote up the mission statement for the college and what human ecology would mean as an interdisciplinary institution. And and College of the Atlantic is unlike most other places, almost all other places, because it has no departments. It's completely non-departmentalized. And and when I visited there the first time, that's that's what blew my mind. Is I would ha- I had had lunch with with an artist and an engineer and a biologist and an anthropologist, and all people trying to talk to each other and actually trying to build a college out of it. It was just fascinating. So just as the just as the Bar Harbor and Mount Desert Island had to, um, like the Phoenix, rise from the flames, you had a similar experience at the College of the Atlant- Atlantic where there was a big fire and your research was essentially destroyed. And not only you, but the entire college really had to rebuild around this and recreate itself. Did this provide, uh, I don't know, a, a space for any sort of reflection on your part? Yes. Um, uh, l- l- let me go back to that, because uh, in 1983, the main building, the center of the college, which was a large rambling estate in Bar Harbor, uh, burned down. And it was in July, as I remember. And uh, I had, at that, in those days, uh, all of our uh, research data was kept on IBM cards. This was before online kinds of things. And I had boxes and boxes and boxes of them in our little computer center there. And all of the work that I had been doing on uh, environmental attitudes and ecological understanding in this country, and I'd also been working in Scandinavia and, and other places, was all destroyed. So my research uh, psychology uh, identity was over with. And uh, and we college was going through some other changes at that point. And I uh, 
one of the changes was they were looking for a new president. And I had, I had just gotten a, a, a grant to go and see if I could find other people who were doing human ecology. And I'd heard of some in Europe. So I, I, that's the following summer, I, I took off to Europe and I traveled all over Europe from England. There were, there were, I found human ecology program at Oxford and the University of London and the University of Edinburgh and Bergen in Norway and in Oslo and uh, Sweden and Denmark and I went to France and anyhow, I found all these people who were doing human ecology and higher education in Europe. Most of them didn't know about each other. And, and so when I got back, um, I had all this new knowledge that there is this human ecology happening in the world. It's not just a COA phenomenon. And the new president had been selected, and it was Lou Rabineau. And Lou uh, was the former chancellor of the University of Connecticut system. And we went out uh, to dinner uh, the first night, and I met him. And the next day he calls me, and he says, Rich, I want you to be the academic dean. So that was life-changing. So in, in many ways, I stopped being a psychologist and I turned into a dean, though I didn't know anything about how to be a dean. Um, but I also, this was also an opportunity, and Lou really supported it, to build connections to other human ecologists around the world. And that became, that replaced my psychology thing with now networking human ecology worldwide, and that's what I've been doing ever since. I learned a lot from your book, and probably in a lot of ways that won't quite come to light yet but I'm guessing that they will cause me to make connections that I probably wouldn't previously have made. How can people find out about your book, uh, Ecology and Experience, Reflections from a Human Ecological Perspective, and also the work that you're doing at the College of the Atlantic? Well, uh, the book, of course, is available through all of the online places, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. That's the easiest, probably the cheapest way to get it. Um, in terms of what else I'm doing, uh, I am still very active with the Society for Human Ecology. I uh, have just finished my term on the Council of the Ecological Society of America, where um, I was a founder of the Human Ecology Division, and we just recently did uh, a history uh, of the human ecological ideas within the Ecological Society of America over the last hundred years. And I'm now working on a similar history of human ecology elsewhere. Uh, there is, this idea of human ecology has been around for a long time, very much under the radar. But as soon as the term ecology came into the language, it was inevitable that people would start to bring humans to it. And they would be anthropologists, they would be geographers, they would be people in, in medicine, they were, they were the sociologists. There were all different kinds of ways that you could look at human relations that have an ecological or have ecological dimensions. And so that has grown from all this sort of little bit of ecology in various other departments of this or that in the university to maybe what COA is for sure, to turn it the whole thing inside out. And now the disciplines are part of the human ecology. And that idea, I think, is growing. It's growing slowly. We see, I th you see it indirectly all over the place with all the language of sustainability. Uh, you see it just yesterday or this, these last couple of weeks in Paris. 195 countries have gotten together to talk about climate and, and to try to do something about it. Uh, I'm in, I'm, there will be people who say more could have been done, but that that even happens is, uh, in, for me, evidence of a human, human ecological point of view and, and those kinds of concerns. Well, I appreciate 
the years and um, energy that you've put into your work and also appreciate your coming down and speaking with us today. We've been having a conversation with Richard Borden, who holds the Rachel Carson Chair in Human Ecology at the College of the Atlantic, and who is also the author of Ecology and Experience Reflections from a Human Ecological Perspective. I'm very grateful for the time that you've put into these efforts, and um, I appreciate your being with me Thank today. Thank you, and I'm grateful for the opportunity as well. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Mac Page an accounting and management consulting firm that believes the path to success is paved by their ability to build lasting, meaningful relationships with their clients. Mac Page, accessible, approachable, and accountable. For more information, go to macpage.com. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 226, Human Ecology. Our guests have included Darren Collins and Richard Borden. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, like our Love Main Radio Facebook page or sign up for our e-newsletter. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running travel food and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle. I hope that you have enjoyed our human ecology show. It's an appropriate show for me given that this is my birthday week and this is a topic that I care deeply about. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Maine Magazine, Berlin City Honda, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Mac Page, and Apothecary by Design. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Emily Davis. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at lovemainradio.com.